Everybody, Dr. Axe here. Welcome to another podcast. I'm so excited today to have Dr. Stephen Gundry, MD. He's one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons, and really he's a pioneer in nutrition. He's authored the best-selling books, The Plant Paradox and The Longevity Paradox. Also, he's got a new book out called The Energy Paradox. So today we're going to be talking about how to naturally boost your energy, reduce inflammation, and heal your body using food as medicine. And I followed Dr. Gundry for years. He also has a, a very popular podcast. And he's an expert in helping people heal from things like autoimmune disease, diabetes, leaky gut syndrome, heart, heart disease, and neurodegenerative illnesses. And I want to welcome today, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Hey, welcome to the show, Doc. Hey, thanks for having me. And I've been following you for years as well. So it's a mutual admiration society. So there you go. Awesome. Love it. All right, well, let's dive in. We want to talk about energy today. Uh, and we want to talk about uh, lots of things, inflammation, and just generally how to heal our bodies. One of the first things I'd love to ask you, though, is I think one of the things I saw now, I used to be in full-time practice. I haven't practiced in, in, in many years, but when I was, one of the biggest complaints my patients had when they first would come in to see me was, I'm, I've just got low energy. Uh, I'm fatigued or I'm just, I feel overwhelmed. I have a lot going on, but, but, but low energy was sort of a common theme you know, and I think that there are different things maybe that can cause it. You know, obviously there, you know, people today might think, oh, it's because of my thyroid or it's because of my adrenals or it's because something else. What do you see being the, at the root causes of a lot of this, this problem with low energy today? Yeah, you're right. You know, I actually uh, continue to see patients uh, six days a week. Um, and even on the weekends, my, uh, my, Day off is Friday when I'm at Gundry MD, so I, I actually don't have a day off. But yeah, I continue to see patients, uh, and it's interesting when I started doing what I do now um, and do restorative medicine. Some people call it functional medicine, but I like the term restorative. Anyhow, one of the first diagnosis codes that I used to use all the time was uh, fatigue and malaise. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a diagnostic code that you can actually bill for, but you're right. People would come in and, you know, have this just fatigue. And my colleagues would just go, well, you know, you're, you're 50 years old and what do you expect? Or you're, you're 40 years old and you got three kids screaming at you all the time. What do you expect that, you know, that's normal. And what I noticed actually early on was that the vast majority of people who would complain about tiredness or fatigue would have markers, uh, easily measured markers of inflammation. And that, you know, takes me back to Hippocrates 2,500 years ago saying all disease begins in the gut. And he was absolutely right. Um, I'm not sure how he figured that out because it took us a long time to figure it out and with sophisticated tests and he had none of that. Uh, recently, Dr. Uh, Dr. Fasano, who was really one of the discoverers of how gluten and other lectins cause leaky gut, uh, wrote a paper saying Hippocrates was right. All disease begins with leaky gut. And I think that's kind of cute. So uh, to answer your question in less than a long-winded way, 
the, the vast majority of people that I see who are tired don't have adrenal fatigue, don't have hypothyroidism, they have inflammation. Now, that inflammation can absolutely lead to Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, I do see a few people with hypercortisolemia, but as I talk about in the new book, The Energy Paradox, what I've just found is that cortisol is actually not the issue. I don't see very many people with adrenal fatigue, but I do see a number of people who have cortical resistance. That is, they are resistant to the effect of cortisol. And I think that's an important distinction. Now, most of us, most of your listeners are now well aware of insulin resistance, whereby probably 80% of the people I see and probably you see uh, have elevated fasting insulin levels and have, in fact, insulin resistance. And we, we used to think that these pre-diabetics or diabetics were diabetic or pre-diabetic because they didn't make enough insulin. And we realized, um, luckily, that the vast majority of type 2 diabetics and all pre-diabetics uh, make too much insulin, but their body is resistant to the action of insulin. Well, what I'd like to assure people is that the vast majority of my patients uh, have either normal cortisol levels or mildly elevated cortisol levels, but they're resistant to the action of cortisol, just like they're resistant to the action of insulin. And it's a protective mechanism that we are so bombarded uh, in our stressful lives that we have literally built up a resistance to the effect of cortisol. And I think that's a, an important distinction. So um, I don't treat people for adrenal fatigue. Um, I really don't. I treat them for leaky gut. And lo and behold, their adrenal fatigue miraculously disappears. Yeah, it's amazing when you, uh, and, and again, this is how I really treated patients. And still, I should throw the disclaimer, I no longer have my clinic, but I still end up caring for, uh, you know, uh, several people a month. And so, but I do want to say, so, you know, I do know that it's amazing when you treat that gut inflammation and that leaky gut, how so many things get better, especially things that autoimmune disease and, you know, the neurodegenerative illnesses, how much they improve, you know, doc, doc, before we do get into energy, I do want to ask one other thing about your book, uh, plant paradox. I know that many of my listeners have read that book. I know you, you really get into a lot of good research there. Can you go into the basis of that about, uh, and again, I know this might be, you know, this could be a one hour answer or, or Hey, maybe it could be a few minutes, but all that being said, okay. All that being said, I would just love to hear that the basis of the plant paradox and what you discuss there. Well, it's, it's called the plant paradox uh, because believe it or not, I'm a confirmed plant predator. And I think that most of us uh, will benefit by eating large amounts of plant material. On the other hand, uh, we have to realize that plants think otherwise, and plants are uh, sentient beings, whether we want to admit it or not. And plants uh, don't 
in general want to be eaten. They absolutely want some of their babies, their fruit to be eaten so that we will distribute their babies. Uh, on the other hand, plants don't want their leaves eaten and don't want a lot of their seeds eaten. And so they protect themselves um, with various compounds. The one that I've been fascinated with for a very long time are proteins that are called lectins. And lectins are sticky proteins and they stick to sugar molecules. And the fascinating thing is these sugar molecules line our mucosal surfaces. Uh, they line our gut lining, they line our blood vessels, they line our joint surfaces, and they even line the surfaces between where one nerve talks to another. And there's pretty interesting data that the original plant predator was an insect and uh, plants could paralyze insects by using lectins to literally stop neurotransmission. And if you think about it, if you've got an insect that is dead or can't move, then you've solved the predator problem. Uh, and animals have developed sophisticated defense systems against lectins. And that's why there are a number of societies that clearly eat large numbers of lectin-containing foods without too much apparent harm. But what I talk about in the plant paradox is that most of our defense systems have been destroyed by our modern lifestyle. And you and I know all about this, the widespread use of broad spectrum antibiotics, which really were only introduced in the 1980s. Uh, the widespread use of uh, antacid proton pump inhibitors, which destroyed gastric acid, which is actually one of the best ways to break up proteins in, in lectins. Um, the widespread, I mean, we, we feed antibiotics still to many, many of our animals that we eat. Um, and we could go on and on, but our microbiome has been destroyed. Our microbiome, believe it or not, loves eating lectin. Very even bacteria that think gluten is delicious. And so we've, we have these defense mechanisms that sadly, and I call them the seven deadly disruptors that have just been pretty much destroyed in all of us, including the introduction of Roundup glyphosate, which is a great way of killing bacteria in our gut and it's actually a great way of causing leaky gut in and of itself. Um, it's a direct leaky gut problem. So that, there you go. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the things I think that our ancestors knew and practiced that we don't much today is sort of how to properly prepare the foods we're eating. You know, it's like, I mean, I know we had this whole raw craze go through, which, hey, maybe if somebody has a certain type of liver disease and certain people do okay with raw. But for most of us, you know, it's sprouted, it's cooked, it's, you know, these foods, you know, if you look at ancient Chinese medicine uh, and Ayurveda and these ancient forms of medicine, it was, they, they rarely recommended raw foods. It was, hey, you want to sprout it, you want to cook it all together for a long period of time and make sure it's well prepared, you know, and, and we don't do that today. So anyways, it makes sense to me. And I want to encourage you guys, one of Dr. Gundry's books, again, this was on the New York Times bestseller list for a long time. It's called The Plant Paradox. Make sure to check out that book. All right, Doc. So let's talk about this energy crisis going on today. You know, when you were looking at the energy crisis, one of the things you mentioned earlier was 
hey, you believe a lot of this starts in the gut and with inflammation. Talk to me a little bit about what are some of the warning signs outside of fatigue? I know fatigue is one thing. Are there any other things that sort of come along with this? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, um, about 78% of my practice now is autoimmune disease and uh, reversing autoimmune disease with diet. And uh, I've published some papers that quite frankly, we're about 94% effective in reversing autoimmune disease with diet and, wow. and lifestyle changes. Not bad. Um, and universally, we, we have now available to us some, some very sophisticated tests so looking at leaky gut and looking at the foods that can cause leaky gut. And I've yet to have a patient with autoimmune disease who doesn't have leaky gut. And as we track leaky gut being repaired, and it is a repairable process, and unfortunately it can take literally up to a year to fix leaky gut. Uh, but as leaky gut uh, gets repaired, we see the measurable markers of autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, um, antithyroid globulin, antithyroid peroxidase, uh, come down to normal. Uh, we see rheumatoid arthritis markers, RF and anti-CCP3 come down to normal. Anti-nuclear antibody come down to normal as the leaky gut gets repaired. So um, I think you can, you can quantify this and as we've done in, in my clinics and, and see this actually transpire as you, as you change foods, as you manipulate the microbiome. And I think that's, that's number one. But getting back to fatigue, what fascinated me, I've, you and, and I and most people working in this area have been fascinated with hunter-gatherers. And of course, one of the modern tribes that people study are the Hadzas in Tanzania. And I was fascinated by a paper that was published a few years ago where they looked at the energy expenditure of the Hadzas. And the men in general are gonna walk, oh, six to eight miles a day. Uh, the women will walk on average three to four miles a day gathering. And when they compared that energy expenditure to desk workers in Western societies, they were actually shocked to find out that the energy expenditure of desk workers was identical to the hunter-gatherers who were clearly, at least on the surface, expending a lot more energy. And as, as a researcher all my life, uh, researchers like tidy conclusions and we don't like to leave things dangling. So these particular researchers said, well, yeah, this is what we found. So what this shows is that there's a level of energy expenditure that we all have. And uh, that's what's going to happen. And that explains why desk workers sitting at a desk all day expend the same amount of energy as people walking eight miles a day. And, and I, I looked at that paper and I go, wait a minute, that's, that doesn't make any sense. So when you dive down deeper, into inflammation. Uh, inflammation is rightfully caused called fire. And fire takes a lot of energy. 
And what I proposed and others have found in the energy paradox is the reason the energy expenditure was actually so remarkably high in these desk workers is that when you look at their level of inflammation, uh, it's considerably higher. The hands have no inflammation. And so, yeah, they're expending energy walking and you know, doing what they're doing, but the people who were sedentary were still using huge amounts of calories, just making inflammation. Hmm. And I think that when we think about the energy that's required for inflammation, that then is not available for energy to do the things we want. Uh, I think that explains a lot of our current crisis. Wow. Hey guys, Dr. Axe here. I am so excited to share that my new book, Ancient Remedies, is already a bestseller. When I started writing this book, I talked to Dr. Oz about the content, and he was so excited that he wrote an endorsement for the book, which he rarely does. People like Carrie Underwood and Dr. Mark Hyman have been raving about the book, and find out why this book already has more than 500 five-star reviews on Amazon in just a few short weeks. Head to draxcom forward slash ancient remedies to learn more about why this book will be your ultimate reference guide for healing over 70 health conditions, including including problems related to your immunity, digestion, hormones, and more. Plus, it has over 70 simple and delicious healing recipes. Again, go to DrAxe.com forward slash ancient remedies to learn more or get a copy today to see what all the buzz is about. You know, one of the things, Doc, is you've continued to talk about, um, which I think is so fascinating, our gut microbiome. And... Uh, what happens with these probiotics in our gut? You know, can you talk to us for a minute about these powerful gut compounds and how they influence, I mean, everything in our body, even including, you know, our hormonal levels, our appetite, and even our energy? Yeah. Um, a big part of the energy paradox that I alluded to it a little bit in the longevity paradox. We, we know that the interaction with probiotics and our gut wall and us is, is very intricate. And to dive deeper into that, we know that mitochondria, which are the energy producing organelles in all of our cells, are actually ancient engulfed bacteria. And they have their own DNA. The mitochondria are able to reproduce separate from reproduction of the cell because they have their own DNA. And uh, we proposed years ago that because mitochondria are in fact bacteria, that there has to be a system, a language that the microbiome in our gut and in our skin and in our mouth and elsewhere can communicate to what I call their sisters, the mitochondria. Uh, it, it, it makes sense on so many levels. Uh, mitochondria are inherited from the mother, so they are not passed in by the father. Uh, so all energy comes from your mother, folks. It doesn't come from your father. Uh, and your initial microbiome is given to you by your mother uh, in the process of vaginal delivery. 
And we know that people who are delivered by cesarean section may take six months to establish a more normal microbiome, whereas vaginal delivery seeds them. So we think, and we thought about this for years, that there was a text message system between the microbiome and mitochondria. And recently, that text message system was translated. And simplistically, they are called postbiotics. So everybody knows probiotics. Those are friendly bacteria. Everybody, most people know about prebiotics. That's the fiber that the probiotics need to eat. And when the probiotics, the friendly bacteria, eat fiber, they make a variety of compounds that are collectively known as postbiotics. One of the first postbiotics that was discovered was butyrate. And I talk a lot about that in the longevity paradox and also in the energy paradox. But what's fascinating is that the main communication system between the microbiome and mitochondria in the brain is actually gaseous. And these are gasotransmitters. I, I wish I was making this stuff up. Or gasomessengers. And by the way, the first discovered gasomessenger was nitric oxide. And I suppose that winning the Nobel Prize for that ought to count for something. But that's a gasomessenger. And subsequently, this trans-kingdom language has been discovered, including hydrogen gas, including hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smell, including methane, and also including carbon dioxide. And what's been worked out in a brilliant set of papers is that these gases are actually talking to mitochondria, talking to neurons, and literally telling them what to do. Now that sounds really far-fetched and it, it takes a little, you know, it's very Star Wars, you know, come on, little, you know, microscopic one-cell organisms are controlling my energy level. Well, let me just give you one example as a teaser. Um, in Japan, it was discovered that people with Parkinson's disease had a gut microbiome that did not make hydrogen gas. Uh, now, hydrogen gas, highly flammable. Uh, just as an aside, uh, I was in the Boy Scouts and Boy Scouts on camping trips would take a Bic lighter and obviously we ate a lot of beans in Boy Scouts on camping trips. And we would actually light our farts. Um, and we'd have this wonderful blue flame and that's hydrogen gas. Wow. Hydrogen gas is instantly diffusible. So what the Japanese found was that people with Parkinson's disease did not make hydrogen gas by their microbiome. And when they had people drink hydrogen water, water that was infused with hydrogen gas, their Parkinson's symptoms got better. And you go, holy cow. I mean, can, can the fact that us taking antibiotics and us eating animals that have taken had antibiotics has killed off a bunch of bacteria 
whose production of hydrogen gas is essential to make our mitochondria work, it's like, my gosh, you know, what else have we done? So. Wow. Yeah, and, and I talk about it in the book. Um, I think the discovery of these postbiotics is as important uh, as the breaking of the German uh, code language uh, in World War II uh, called the Enigma Code. And it was the breaking of that Enigma Code that was one of the main factors in, in turning the war. And I mean, the triumph of figuring out this code of actually what's called trans-kingdom communication, how you know, one kingdom of animals talks to another kingdom and figuring out the language. I love it. Yeah. Postbiotics. We know, you know, we've heard of pre, we've heard of probiotics themselves and now post. And so, you know, I think it's so important to remember that there's a, um, you know, how some of these things work together synergistically, how, you know, you've got this, this, you know, these forms of fiber, especially that really work with probiotics. And, you know, there's great research, of course, I know, you know, this on things like some of those antioxidants of like grape skins, you know, the Japanese knotweed slash resveratrol and how, what that does, or some of those compounds in green tea and some of the others and how that works with the gut microbiome. And of course, some of the already, you know, fermented foods like sauerkraut. So anyways, I, uh, I'm excited to, I know I was able to go through some of the book. One of the things I found so interesting, uh, that you sent over is you have these seven deadly energy disruptors. Can you go through those, the big seven there for me? Yeah. Let me, let me give you a few, actually, let me give you the most controversial. Yeah. Uh, so fructose, fructose, um, is the sugar in, in fruit. And, uh, my first book years ago, one of my sayings was give fruit the boot. And people go, oh, don't be ridiculous. That's nature's candy. You know, fruit is so good for you. Well, we, we forget that we inherited a genetic mutation from great apes that uh, allows us in great apes to take fructose and instantly power up what's called de novo lipogenesis in the liver. That is, turn fructose into triglycerides. And it allowed great apes and humans to convert fruit into fat uh, during summer. And there's actually huge books written about how great apes only gain weight during fruit season. And believe it or not, fruit season does not last 365 days a year. It is in the summer and early fall, even in the jungle. And so we once upon a time only had access to fruit for a limited period of time. And so we take fruit and convert it not only into triglycerides, but we also convert it into uric acid. Uh, which uh, in the energy paradox, I show how fructose, believe it or not, depletes ATP production in the liver, which is one of the major sources of ATP production. And so it actually suppresses energy production. 
So people say, oh, you need fruit for energy. Well, I'm sorry, that's not how fructose works because of this mutation we inherited from grade eight. It actually suppresses mitochondrial ATP production. And it also is turned into a fatty acid that many people have probably not heard of called palmitate. Many people hear the word palmitic acid and think of palm oil, which is a source of palmitic acid. But in our diet, the biggest source of palmitic acid is from fructose making palmitic acid. And as I show in the energy paradox, we use palmitic acid to actually produce insulin resistance through a chain of reactions, making ceramides. And ceramides are one of the major ways that we produce insulin resistance. And so if you wanna increase your energy, please give fruit the boot. And if you're gonna eat fruit, use very low glycemic fruit, particularly blackberries and raspberries are the safest. The other thing we have to realize is that all of our fruit has been bred for sugar content. For instance, a cup of grapes has more sugar than an entire Hershey's milk chocolate bar. Now, uh, a cup of grapes. And that's never been the case before. Even blueberries have been bred for sugar content. So be careful with fruit. It's one of our major energy disruptors. We now have 365 days of endless summer. And I can trace our poor energy to our overconsumption of fruit and high fructose corn syrup. And we have to remember that half of table sugar, sucrose, is fructose, and the other half is glucose. And when you take those things apart, you can give people glucose all day long and this won't happen, but you give them this, the fructose component and you'll produce metabolic syndrome and you'll reduce your energy. So that's number one. Uh, number two, we kind of alluded to that, the overuse of antibiotics has absolutely decimated our microbiome. And I, you know, I can't say that enough. And people go, well, no, my package says that you know, this chicken was never given antibiotics. Well, there's a loophole in those FDA rules. And the loophole is actually a very broad loophole. The loophole says, well, if the veterinarian on staff thinks that one chicken in a flock of 100,000 chickens in a warehouse might be sick, then the veterinarian is allowed to dose the entire 100,000 flock of chicken with antibiotics to protect that one chicken he thinks might be sick. Now you're going, well, no, a veterinarian wouldn't do that. But the veterinarians are employed by big agriculture, big corporations. And uh, Money talks, and I'll leave it at that. The other big energy disruptor is blue light. And one of, one of the things that's happened to us uh, over, well, actually the last hundred years, some people believe that Edison is the cause of all modern diseases. And maybe that's partially right, but the invention of the light bulb and changing circadian rhythms that were not in sync with natural sunlight uh, has absolutely thrown our energy production for a loop. 
not only we are responsive to changing in, in light, and blue light was more intense, believe it or not, in the summer. And blue light makes us, number one, hungry, because guess what? That's when food's available in the summer, particularly fruit. And so blue, blue light stimulates us to be hungry. Also, blue light keeps us awake. And so why stay awake? Because that's when the food's available. And now we have blue light literally 24 hours a day. We have it from all of our devices. We have it from most of our lighting. So one of the things that we can do uh, that I really recommend all my patients do is get themselves even a cheap pair of blue blocking glasses. And immediately when they come home, uh, put them on, put them on when they're at the computer, put them on when they're on their cell phone, put the daylight, dark light on your cell phone so that it's dark uh, during night. Uh, you can buy an app for your computer to do the same thing. But uh, that's a big, big change that I see in people when they start doing that. Can I do one more? Yeah. Hey, you can do as many as you want. I'm loving this. So, um, so long ago, before I was a heart surgeon, we, we trained in general surgery. And one of the great pharmacologic advances in the treatment of ulcer disease and in the treatment of heartburn was these proton pump inhibitors that stopped gastric acid secretion. And it was quite frankly miraculous uh, in that we didn't have to cut people's stomachs out anymore, but uh, we were rather naive. So these drugs, um, Nexium, Prilosec, Protonix, uh, to a lesser extent Zantac, all are what are called proton pump inhibitors. And uh, you don't need a, a doctorate to understand that mitochondria produce energy by pumping protons along gradient. And what were, we were naive about is that we figured that these proton pump inhibitors actually worked only on stomach acid and proton pumps. And they didn't have any effect on other proton pumps that, oh, just so happened to be mitochondria. And that's why we have seen this sad epidemic of dementia associated with the use of proton pump inhibitors. In my field, we see congestive heart failure associated with proton pump inhibitors because we're actually affecting the basic energy producing organ now that depends on pumping proteins. And so to get rid of, of our heartburn, we've actually suppressed our energy production. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's actually a black box warning on all of these drugs that you should never use these for over two weeks. They're that dangerous. And I see patients who've been on these for 10 years and I see them for you know, congestive heart failure or brain fog. And I'll go, oh, you know, I see you're on a meprazole. Oh yeah, you know, I've been on that for you know, eight years for heartburn and boy, it's great. And I go, 
did your you know well-meaning doctor ever told you you can only have this for two weeks? No, he says, don't worry about that. And I go, that's the first thing we're getting rid of. I mean, it's crazy. You know, Doc, one of the things I did is I, I wrote a book recently and I, I go through, and I really just do this for a chapter, but I sort of go through our current system today and why it's not working and how we're really talking a, a lot about what, you know, the way you treat patients, getting to the root cause. And the thing that I respect so much too is I go through in there and talk about, you know, we take an oath as doctors. I know you took it. It's first do no harm. And that's the thing is so many of these drugs, they are doing harm. It's sort of the first thing we're doing rather than diet first and these lifestyle changes. And so, but I go through, I mean, if you look at the side effects, that is one of the biggest ones when I went through, cause I went through about 20 different medications and the ones with the, the ones that cause the greatest nutritional deficiencies, those proton pump that, that and antibiotics were like the top two. Yeah. Cause you know, and people forget, you know, um, and we can argue how much protein we need as older adults, um, but we have to have gastric acid to digest proteins, break it down into individual amino acids that we can then absorb. And it's like, well, if you don't have acid in your stomach, guess what? There's no other way that you were designed to break up protein. You can squirt all the pancreatic juice you want. You can put in all the bile acids, but your first and only shot in breaking down protein was gastric acid. Yeah. And you've taken that away. So we see all these seniors with sarcopenia, with you know, no muscle mass or with low albumins. And you know, they're all on these acid blockers. And you go, what have we done? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And that's why I appreciate you. You know, you're, you're out there helping so many people actually find what the root cause is and helping them heal. And I know one of the things you do in your book so well as you go through, here's what not to do, but also here is what to do. I love how practical you are. Can you go through with us right now? Like what, what are some of those, um, you know, changing what we eat? Cause one of the things I know you're a big fan of is the right type of fiber. Can you go to through some of the foods, the dietary changes that we all need to start making to help heal this gut microbiome and boost our energy? Yeah, I think um, most of us uh, have been taught, you know, about fiber that uh, there's insoluble fiber, there's soluble fiber. And really all that means is Soluble fiber dissolves in water and insoluble fiber doesn't. But it goes actually far beyond that in that soluble fiber primarily is what our gut microbiome, our probiotics eat. And those are the fibers that they're when they eat those fibers. And these are sugar molecules that we can't eat. And in fact, one of the exciting things, just as an aside, is that it appears that most polyphenols are in fact prebiotics and that their major benefit may be because bacteria actually eat these uh, polyphenols and get a benefit and then pass that benefit as a postbiotic onto us. So we're changing the way we even think about polyphenols. So one of the things that was impressive to me is most insoluble fiber, uh, particularly in grains, uh, in the halls of grains, actually produce bowel movements. 
by being actual irritants that, uh, and this is actually where most of the lectins are, they actually produce razor scrapes on the inside of your bowel. And one of the consequences of irritating the bowel is you want to get rid of that and you have a bowel movement. So one of the big mistakes in, in fiber was actually made by the father of fiber, uh, Dennis Burkett, who was an English surgeon. And uh, Burkett did missionary work in Africa and he was a colorectal surgeon. And he went down to Africa to work on colon cancer and he couldn't find any colon cancer. And he couldn't find any hemorrhoids. And so he actually went, well, what the heck? You know, where's all the colon cancer? So he became obsessed, literally obsessed about following Africans, uh, these tribes into the bush. And he started taking pictures of their bowel movements and their bowel movements were almost like ter termite mounds. They were so huge. And he started looking at what they were eating and they were eating tubers, uh, yams and other, you know, tiger nuts. And he said, huh, you know, it's gotta be the fiber in these things that is protecting them from colon cancer and is producing these huge bowel movements. So he got back to uh, England and it, it's actually a great story for your readers to look at. He was introduced to uh, Jutkin, who at that time said, you know, sugar is the evil of, of all things. And so, England wasn't big on tubers, but England had plenty of oats and plenty of wheat. And so he said, well, fiber is fiber. The fiber in oats and the fiber in wheat is fiber. And so unfortunately, the idea of insoluble fiber was equated with soluble fiber. And I think mm. we're still recovering from that notion. And I see so many patients that if I can get them away from their insoluble fiber, uh, things change dramatically. In fact, let me tell you one real quick story yeah. that happened two weeks ago. Um, I have offices in Palm Springs and Santa Barbara. And in Palm Springs, we have a snowbird population. And so the, one of my snowbird patients came back recently and he, um, he had rheumatoid arthritis and we got him off of his medications and his rheumatoid arthritis markers went away. And when I saw him back, uh, one of his rheumatoid arthritis markers was mildly elevated for the first time in about three years. And I went, you're cheating. And he said, what, me? No, there's no way, I, you know, I, I haven't changed a thing. I said something has entered your diet that is causing this. And I said, what do you have for breakfast? And he says, oh, uh, I'm glad you asked. He says, I have pressure cooked oatmeal. I've been having it, you know, all summer. I love it. And I go, you can't have pressure cooked oatmeal. Oats can't be pressure cooked. There's a, a gluten-like molecule in oats that uh, gluten can't be broken by pressure cooking. And he said, it's right on your list. You know, I give him a list. And I pulled the list up. He said, oh, geez, I forgot it. He said, that's it. That's what I changed. Um, and I see this sadly all the time. Uh, so that's just one tiny little example of we made it. Dennis Burkett led us down the wrong road. 
Yeah, I'm with you, Doc. You know, one of the things I have, I've had patients do, and one of the foods that I found to be the most healing for people with inflammatory bowel disease is just pumpkin. You know, I love pumpkin because it's, um, you know, it's so high in beta carotene and things. I found that, you know, that being digested versus a lot of the grains, lower in sugar tends to be much easier. Um, and that's one I actually prescribed a lot in Chinese medicine. Yeah, as long as you, uh, as long as you don't eat the, quite frankly, pumpkin seeds are full of lectins. As is oh, no seeds. Yeah. Uh, so I take those away from people. 100%. Uh, a proviso, I do see a number of patients. We do have to remember that anything with a seed in it is a fruit, including an avocado. But avocados are great. Don't get me wrong. Have an avocado a day. Have two a day, please. But uh, even pumpkins and some of my patients who have high triglycerides. And if you have high triglycerides, you're going to have high LDL. Um, I have to take away even their pumpkins and even their sweet potatoes. And recently, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's become a good friend of mine, mm -hmm. has taken away sweet potatoes from his uh, FOE 3-4 patients because of their uh, high starch content. Having said that, I had a purple sweet, sweet potato with my wife last night, and we cooked it threw it in the refrigerator, cooled it, and then reheated it. And so resistant starches are great for you. And the best source of a resistant starch is a purple sweet potato. And probably those Okinawans were so smart way ahead. <laughs> I'm with you. I'd love to also dig into some of the uh, lifestyle changes that we get into for people, you know, because I think that that's another thing that I know you, you see the same thing. I mean, I, because one of the things I noticed when I took care of a lot of patients and still today, when I take care of somebody who has inflammatory bowel disease, if they eat certain dairy, if they eat gluten, it's like a bomb goes off in their body, but a stressful situation in life, it's almost like they ate gluten or they had dairy. You know, it's like a, emotional stress triggers this thing within us as well. You know, have you seen that same thing or what have you seen there? And what are some of the things you recommend that your patients do to deal with stress? Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, it's a two-way communication. The, the gut-brain access goes both directions. And particularly a lot of my patients with autoimmune diseases, when I would take a very detailed history, a number of them, particularly women, could trace the, the onset of their issue to a very stressful uh, episode in their life. Um, one woman, mother died suddenly when she was a young girl, uh, a divorce. Uh, COVID-19 is really good at, at stressing, uh, whether it's loss of a job, whether it's loss of contact with physical contact with family members or with friends. So that is a big part of it. And we actually have, uh, there's a lot of really good, easy to do meditation that can be done. The other thing I do in the book is uh, I recommend what I call exercise snacking. Uh, many of us, uh, eat because we're bored and we don't recognize um, hunger as actually boredom. And so there's some really cool evidence that even one minute of walking up and down stairs may be more effective 
than 30 minutes of continuous exercise. So when I, when I have people who tell me they're hungry, I say, look, go have an exercise snack instead. Why don't you do jumping jacks for a minute? Go walk up and down stairs for a minute. Um, brush your teeth and do deep knee bends while you're brushing your teeth. You got nothing better to do. And these little exercise snacking actually add up. And as you well know, there are now, when you exercise muscles, you make uh, these really cool, good cytokines called myokines. And myokines are incredibly good for your brain in actually calming stress. So take an exercise snack the next time you're stressed. I love it, Doc. You know, I had a, a doc who I talked to years ago and looked at a little research on essentially doing what you said. It's just two minutes. You know, it's like these two minute exercise snacks, especially around when you're getting hungry is so effective. It's those body weight, just squatting down a little bit, doing something like that, going on a walk. You know, yeah. these things all help. I actually write prescriptions for a number of my patients to get a dog. And some of them actually come back with those prescriptions framed. And they say, this is the only prescription that a doctor ever gave me that, you know, was the right thing to do. Because a dog is going to go and make you go outside and walk twice a day, whether you want to or not. Amen. I know I've got Chelsea and I have two dogs at home. They're both about one's 20, one's 25 pounds or little King Charles Spaniels. And uh, King Charles. They, they, they pretty much get their paws muddy every morning at this point to where I have to, you know, wash them off and we take them on a walk. So anyways, it's been good for uh, good for our health. Well, uh, Doc, I have just a, one or two more questions here for you. Um, you know, one can you go through, I'd love to hear your daily diet. Like, what does this look like? So for you, breakfast, lunch, di you know, dinner, any sort of, you know, dessert when you have it, you know, maybe throughout the, like, what, what does that look like for you? Well, so, um, believe it or not, I, as far as I know, I'm the first person to write, uh, about, um, time restricted eating in a popular book in, in 2006, Dr. Gundry's diet evolution. And during, for the last 20 years, from January through June, during the week, I eat one meal a day from six to eight o'clock at night, so that 22 out of 24 hours I'm fasting. And so that's the eat one meal a day. I do not eat breakfast. Uh, breakfast is absolutely positively the least important meal of the day. Uh, in fact, uh, you can go to the history of breakfast, and breakfast is a very, very modern phenomenon. Um, it, the French have no word for breakfast. Déjeuner was first meal, and it was lunch. And when the tourists showed up, uh, they had to invent breakfast, petit déjeuner. I mean, do you really think our ancestors crawled out of our caves and said, what's for breakfast? There wasn't any breakfast. You had to find it. You know, for one, I don't know that they crawled out of caves, but, uh, you know, you and I probably differ there. But all that being said, um, I'm with, I mean, especially intermittent fasting. And the thing I will, you know, I want to credit you with this. You were one of the first people I know when I was reading on intermittent fasting, you were, you were one of the first people I read an article on who was talking about the benefits, which, which, I, which is amazing. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's really funny. My first book was with Random House, and I actually had an entire chapter on time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting. And my editor said, this is nuts. This is crazy. No one is going to believe you. She said, you know, you're crazy enough already. But she said, no, we're not going to do this. I said, 
here's the data. You know, I've been doing this. I've been doing it for five years already. And I say, here's the data. She said, all right, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two pages to make your case. And so it's in there. And I actually saw her at the Mind and Body Green last year. Um, she came up to me first thing, Heather Jackson. She said, can you ever forgive me? She said, you were so far ahead of your time. She said, how did you know? I said, I told you. But yeah, and that's all part of the energy paradox. And what I do in the energy paradox, the vast majority of people have a really hard time of going from, you know, eating a 16 hour window a day, which is, believe it or not, most Americans eat for yeah. 16 and even making a transition to 12 hours of eating is very difficult because 80% of people are insulin resistant. So I have a six week program in the energy paradox where we're gonna step you down one hour at a time over a six week period so that by the end of six weeks, you'll think nothing of having your first, your break fast at noon and then finishing up at seven o'clock at night. And you'll easily do a seven hour window and think nothing of it. But quite frankly, if I ask my readers, hey, tomorrow I only want you to eat seven hours out of the day, you would crash so fast. The vast majority of people are going, I can't do this. Yeah. You know, I practiced a form of intermittent fasting for a couple of years today. And what's interesting too, you know, I think a lot of, um, uh, today I, I follow mostly Chinese medicine. What Chinese medicine recommends is eating your meal. You may eat a breakfast, but it's closer to nine or 10. And uh, they say, eat like a King for breakfast, eat like a, I'm trying to think the exact saying, but and a popper for dinner. that's right. A popper for dinner. So, but their dinner, they recommend eating a, essentially a late breakfast. You eat around nine. That's when you're, they say your stomach chi is the highest when you digest about nine or 10. You eat another around 11 or around one, and then you eat an early dinner around five, but it's a very small sort of snack. And anyways, what you're saying, I mean, there's, there's different cultures, different dietary recommendations, but this principle holds true. That eating window in TCM is about eight hours, uh, you know, of what you're eating. So anyways, it's, it's, it's greatly condensed as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I think if culturally, uh, I like the idea of you know eating like a king at breakfast, a queen at lunch, and a pauper at dinner. Culturally, that's very difficult. And I actually debated uh, with my editors at HarperCollins about having that option uh, because it does work. But culturally, it's really hard to pull off. I'm one of those people now, and maybe just because we have kids now. Like you know, I I'm one of those people. I like going to bed early. So Chelsea and I will eat dinner. We joke around like, I'll eat dinner at 4.30 or 5, you know, and um, anyways, we're, we're big introverts. And so it kind of works for us. But you know, you're right. Culturally, it does not, it does not work. It does not fly. Hey, I want to encourage everybody right now. Um, check out Dr. Gundry's new book, Dr. Doc. I want you to talk about this for a minute, but I want to encourage you guys go to barnesandnoble.com, go to amazon.com. This book is in bookstores nationwide. And I can tell you one of the things that Dr. Gundry, when he writes a book, I don't want to say it's an automatic bestseller, but he has written some fantastic bestselling books, The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, now The Energy Paradox. So doc, talk to us a little bit about your new book. What's in it? Do you have meal plans, shopping, recipe? Like like walk us through the new book. Well, the new book starts people, I think it's really important to know why you're doing something and why 
the reasons you're doing something. So the, the first part of the book, like all my books, really is an education on why this is happening to people, why your energy is low, and then what you can do about it. The second part of the book is, okay, here, here's how we put this into action. Here's the, here's the foods to eat to feed your gut buddies to make all these postbiotics that are going to tell your mitochondria to make energy. The second thing is, okay, we know the huge benefits of time-controlled eating, but here's how to do it in, in an easy way to do. And then an exciting thing is I'm introducing the first meal of the day whenever you want your break fast is what's called a mono meal. Now, uh, I love this, mono. this is great. So if you look, you can take any diet uh, and most diets are that have been successful and you know, people latch onto them, primarily choose one particular uh, source of uh, calories to eat whether it's a high protein diet, whether it's a high fat diet, whether it's a high carbohydrate diet. I mean, the Duke rice diet works, get over it. Uh, and I've been fascinated about that ever since I started this over 20 years ago. And these all work and you go, well, wait, why do they work? It's because you actually give your mitochondria one primary energy source to deal with at a time. And the book goes into why most of us it's rush hour at our mitochondria 16 hours a day because we are whamming our mitochondria with proteins, fats, and carbohydrates simultaneously. And we have never ever asked our mitochondria to handle all three, all three sources simultaneously. So the fun thing is the first meal of the day, you get to have a mono meal. And whether it's a high protein meal, whether it's a high carbo, carbohydrate meal, or in a couple of weeks, a high fat meal, that's how you get to start your day. So what's fun is, hey, you wanna have millet cereal with almond milk one day and then an egg white omelet the next day and then two avocados with egg yolks the next day, knock your socks off, it'll work. And people go, oh wow, variety. Well, essentially, it's so funny. I was, I was actually teaching a workshop here recently and I said, you know, if you want to heal, one of the greatest things you can do is go back and eat like a baby, you know, and it's just, it's those mono meals, you know, I love it. It's great advice. And I want to encourage everybody, get the book again, The Energy Paradox. It's Dr. Gundry. In fact, just go on Amazon right now and just search Dr. Gundry. You're going to see, look at the amount of reviews on his books, The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox. We're talking about tens of thousands of people reading these books, raving about them and talking about how it helped them overcome autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative illness, reversing their type two diabetes, reversing inflammatory bowel disease. So the results speak for themselves. And so Dr. Gundry, I know you're a busy man. I know you're, you know, not, you're, you're in practice and you're lecturing across the world. So just want to let you know, Hey, appreciate your time. It's such a uh, honor to speak with a, uh, you know, with a, with, with a colleague, but also somebody who is pioneering, uh, you know, a lot of these health protocols in the functional medicine space. So thanks for being on today. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. Uh, keep doing what you are doing and I uh, hope to see you again soon. Sounds great. Well, everybody, hey, thanks for listening uh, to this week's podcast. I'll be back next week with another one. Thanks, everybody. 
Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Make sure to go to my recent Instagram post and let me know what your favorite part of the show was. Also, don't forget to follow me at Dr. Josh Axe there on Insta, where I cover the latest health trends, natural medicine, and so much more. Also, if you're loving this podcast, do me a big favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Thanks so much for being on mission with me. See you next week. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. In some cases, individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein.